just a word about how we're going to handle this tonight. We're going to try to cover seven chapters tonight. Big chunk of, chunk of scripture. And so there may be a few places where I might summarize some of what's being said. While I summarize, you read it. And you can kind of get the, the gist of it. But I think by doing that, we can kind of move through tonight and, and sort of keep the pace up and, and move through this wonderful, wonderful book. Job chapter 4. And I've got that horrible feeling that I'm forgetting something. What am I forgetting? Bibles. Anybody need a Bible? Because if you don't have a Bible tonight, you're going to be lost. Anybody? You're going to be lost anyway if you don't have a Bible. So you need a Bible. But uh, you'll particularly be lost in a Bible study tonight. Great. Yeah, give the pastor's daughter a Bible right there. Perhaps we can take an offering after the service tonight and maybe we can purchase Pastor James's daughter a Bible. My, oh my. Is he so cheap he didn't buy you a Bible? Well, she's always at the church. She can just use the church's Bibles. Is that what he told you? Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Bless us, Lord, as we study through the word. As we go through the word, Lord, may your word go through us. Change us, challenge us, cleanse us, teach us, and love us, Lord. Because we all struggle like Job and like his friends. We all are trying to make sense of the tough situations we face. So help us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The trophy case at the University of North Carolina makes most schools blue with envy. Carolina blue, that is. In fact, did you know that even the fire trucks in Chapel Hill are blue? North Carolina's trophy case contains 35 national championship awards, including five for men's basketball and an amazing 19 for women's soccer. The trophy case is full of plaques and cups and medals and clip nets. Well, in Job chapters 1 and 2, we get a glimpse inside heaven's trophy case. And guess what we find in heaven's trophy case? There sits Job. God was pleased with Job. Like a proud papa, God even bragged on Job's piety and devotion. In fact, he said in chapter 1, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? But one of heaven's visitors, Satan, he was cynical of Job's devotion. He pointed to all the blessings that God had poured out on Job. And then he said, look at all the good stuff that you've given him. Why wouldn't Job serve you? Satan suggests that, Job is on God's gravy train. Hey, as long as he's on the payroll, God, as long as he's riding your coattails, as long as you're just his sugar daddy, well, why would Job try to rock the boat? Satan challenges God to stop the blessing, to cut Job off. And Job will surely cut off his worship and his devotion. Of course, God accepts the challenge. 
And in chapter 1, he lifts the hedge of protection around Job. He allows Satan to strike Job's wealth and family. His livestock, his houses, his ten kids are destroyed overnight. And yet, Job responds, empty or full, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amazing. You know, once there was a lady, she was known in the church as having never said a negative word about anyone. Well, one day, some jokesters, you know, they approached her and they asked her, they said, what's your opinion of the devil? Well, they figured that even this lady wouldn't dare say anything nice about the devil. They finally get to hear her make a negative comment about someone else. She thought for a long, long time, and then she answered, Well, you do have to admire his persistence. Hey, here's an example of the devil's persistence. Satan returns in chapter 2, and he issues another challenge. He says to God, let me touch not just his wealth, but also his health. Strike his body, and he'll curse you, God. God allows Satan to inflict Job with an illness. Full body boils. Imagine Job. He's sitting in the ash heap where they burned the town's trash. This once noble man is scratching his itching boils with a shard of pottery. Job has gone from holding the keys of the city to being the sleaze of the city. That's when three of his friends approach him. They join him. And for seven days and nights, they all just sort of sit there waiting on their friend to break his silence. Tradition said that bystanders couldn't talk until the grieving man had spoken first. Job finally breaks the ice in chapter 3. And that's when his so-called friends take their turns addressing Job's calamity. These men utter eight speeches followed by Job's eight rebuttals. Three guys, three counselors, Eliphaz, he tries to be diplomatic as we'll see. He, he tries to be eloquent. So we'll call him Eliphaz the eloquent. Bildad, he's much more dogmatic. He's straight to the point. He speaks his mind. We'll call him Bildad the brutal. And then Zophar, well, He's just downright mean, no doubt about it. He gets labeled Zophar the Zealous. Eliphaz was probably the oldest, and so he goes first, chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Timonite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Eliphaz begins by acknowledging Job's fragile state. Poor Job probably isn't up for any conversation. But Eliphaz can't refrain. He's got to talk to Job. There's some things on his mind. There's some things he needs to get off his chest. You know, you've heard it said, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who have something to say and those who have to say something. Well, Eliphaz was one of the latter. He's got to speak. He's got to get some things off his chest. Here it comes, Job, ready or not. Surely you have instructed many and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Job, you've given advice to others, but now you need some good counsel yourself. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? He acknowledges, Job, you're an honest man. 
And Eliphaz has high hopes. When Job is shown the error of his ways, he's going to admit it. He's going to repent of it. And immediately his plight is going to improve. Verse 7, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? In other words, Eliphaz is saying, this kind of calamity, the kind of calamity that you are suffering, Job, it just doesn't happen to righteous people. Where have ever have the uh, upright ever been cut off? Job, you must have committed a horrible sin. And Eliphaz says it as if it's an obvious, non-debatable, self-evident truth. As a matter of fact, here's what happens for the next 28 chapters. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they try to impose on their friend Job a faulty theology. These guys are strict adherents to what I call a kindergarten theology. Here it is. If you face trouble or sickness or any kind of loss, it means that you've sinned in some way. And you're being punished for that sin. Eliphaz and his friends assume that suffering is always God's way of judging evil, while wealth and health are always God's reward for righteousness. Tragically, there are Christians today who hold to this same faulty theology. Just watch the Trinity Broadcasting Network. I mean, most of the teachers there, they preach a kindergarten theology. Do the right thing and you'll be rich. You'll be healthy and happy. Man, you'll be driving your Lexus in no time. Believers prosper. Sinners suffer. That's just the way it is. Trust me, Paul and Jan, they would have never invited Job onto their show. Did you know that in Robert Shuler's Possibility Thinker's Bible, only 14 verses in the entire book of Job get highlighted? Evidently, Job's message doesn't resonate very well with some Christians. You know, I have a friend who suffers from chronic asthma, and she's such a godly lady. She's a woman of prayer, and yet her Christian friends insisted that her suffering had to be the result of some sin in her life. Her friends, like Job's friends, went to great effort to try to pin a sin on her. Reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon strip. Snoopy's standing there next to his doghouse. It's been burned to the ground by a fire, and he's sobbing. I've lost my pool, my Van Gogh, all of my keepsakes. Well, that's when Lucy approaches him, and she sort of snaps at him, and she says, I can tell you why your house burned down. You sinned. And Snoopy responds to Lucy with one of the best theological answers ever uttered. He says, Soon, Job is going to join in with Snoopy. Eliphaz continues here in verse 8. Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, trouble doesn't just sprout out of nowhere. You reap what you sow. Job's trouble has to be the result of the seeds of sin. Notice too, Eliphaz says, even as I have seen... Notice he's basing his beliefs and his opinions on his own personal experience. And guys, 
this can be dangerous. Just because a set of circumstances in my life panned out a certain way, it doesn't mean that the other person's life will turn out the same way. Things don't necessarily pan out the same way for everyone every time. You know, it's like the rare situation where the guy in the automobile accident, he gets thrown out of the car just before it explodes because he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. And now, despite all of the statistics that prove otherwise, this guy's adamant. You should never ride in a car with a seatbelt buckled. I, I mean, just because it panned out, panned out a certain way for you, don't you think that it's going to work that way for everyone the next time? Eliphaz says, even as I have seen. I think, too, of, of many churches. You know, just because I spoke in tongues when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, that must mean that, you know, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to speak in tongues. Well, well, that's not necessarily true. Just because it happened one way for you doesn't necessarily mean that that becomes normative for everyone else. Hey, truth needs to be based on God's Word, not on as I have seen. He goes on, by the blast of God. They perish, and by the breath of His anger, they are consumed. Sin angers God, and God is quick to blast the sinner with His judgment, Eliphaz says. You see, to Eliphaz, this explains Job's overnight destruction. It was a blast from God. He says, the roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey. And the cubs of the lioness are scattered. God judges even the kings of the beasts. He can bring judgment on Job. Verse 12. Now a word was secretly brought to me. And my ear received a whisper of it. And disquieting, disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men. Fear came upon me and trembling. Which made all my bones shake. Eliphaz now says he has a dream. Sounds more like a nightmare, doesn't it? Here Eliphaz pulls a dirty trick. He pulls out the old supernatural trump card. You know, at first he appealed to what he had seen. As I have seen. That was the basis of his opinions. Now he's appealing to a supernatural dream. God spoke to me. An angel appeared. And this is what he told me. I hope you understand. This is a favorite technique of the spiritual intimidator. I mean, when somebody pulls out the supernatural trump card, you know, I had a dream. God spoke to me. I mean, how do you answer to that? How do you argue with supernatural revelation, you know? How do you debate with the words of an angel? Of course, I hope you're smart enough not to be bullied around by this kind of tactic. You remember in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul warns us, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul says that even angels can lie. If an angel comes and sits on your bed and tells you another gospel that's different from the one in your Bible, let him be accursed. Dreams and visions are always suspect. They should always be judged against the authority of God's Word. If an angelic communication or a personal experience isn't backed up by the Bible, it should be rejected. 
Elephaz continues to relay his dream. Then a spirit passed before my face, and the hair on my body stood up. Evidently, the fact his hair stood on the end sort of made it more real. You know, we use that same expression today, don't we? I was so scared the hair on the back of my neck stood straight up. You know, if you want to get your point across to me and make it authoritative, I would prefer that you show me chapter and verse rather than show me the hair on the back of your neck standing up. Eliphaz says of the spirit who spoke, It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes, and there was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? Now now understand what's happening here. Eliphaz is faulty kindergarten theology has backed him into a corner. Job has asserted his innocence. Yet according to kindergarten theology, you're left with only one of two options. When bad stuff happens, either God failed, I'm sorry, either Job failed or God is a failure. It's one or the other. When when bad stuff happens, either you sin and God judged you. You know, that's the only explanation. Either God, Job failed or God is a failure. And and since uh, since Eliphaz isn't going to call God a failure... It has to be that Job has sinned. Recall what Jesus said in John chapter 8. The truth will make you free. But you know it's equally true that a faulty, erroneous theology will trap you. And it will force you into drawing harmful, guilt-producing conclusions. You know it's true. Bad theology makes for bad living. Here's a good example of it. In verses 18 to 21, Eliphaz tells Job, That if God judges angels who sin, how much more will He judge humans? God breaks the wicked in pieces, which is exactly what's happened to Job. The implication is is that Job has some sin he needs to confess. Chapter 5. Call out now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man, And envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. You know, for short times, even evil men might seem to stabilize and prosper. But it doesn't last for long, he says. For his sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. Implied is that Job's sons were also crushed. Because of their father's sin. Verse 5. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. In other words, there's a reason that calamity strikes. When bad things happen, there's a reason for it. It doesn't just come out of thin air. That's what he's telling them. Eliphaz is saying that Affliction and judgment, it doesn't just occur at random. Then he says, Yet a man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. (laughs) That kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Human nature. Yet a man is born to trouble 
All men are born to trouble and the sparks fly upward. You know, a lot of what Eliphaz says is not true, but there's a lot that he says that is true. And here he reiterates man's rebellious nature. We are all born to trouble. We're all born sinners. From birth, we we come out of the womb stirring up trouble. We cause friction. Sparks fly the moment we come out of the womb. You know, there's a verse from an old song by George Thurgood and the Destroyers. It's not a Christian song, by the way. But, but it really does amplify verse 7. Mark, won't, won't you play it? Here it comes. Some of you might recognize it. There you go. There you go. She could tell right away. The nurse at the hospital who, who, who saw him delivered, she could tell right away he was bad at a bone. And you know what? That's not only true of George Thorogood, it's true of you and it's true of me. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. We're all just bad to the bone. That's our problem. Verse 8. But as for me... I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Boy, Job, if all this had happened to me, I'd repent. I'd seek God. I mean, he's calling on Job to turn to God as if Job had turned from him. In verses 10 through 16, Eliphaz mentions the obvious. God sends the rain. He exalts the humble. He frustrates the crafty. He saves the needy. He gives the poor man hope. In essence, Eliphaz is preaching to the choir. Job feels like he's a sinner in an altar call. He's being sold on what he already believes. You know, he's being told, hey, God's good. If you come to Him, He'll forgive you. Job is saying, wait a minute, I already love God. I already serve God. I've got nothing for which to repent. Verse 17, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. You know, we're told the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. Like any good father, God spanks his kids when they need it. Job just didn't need a spanking. That's the problem. Man. He didn't need, Job hadn't even broken curfew. He says, for he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. Boy, never forget that verse. What a comforting verse. Especially, don't forget it when God takes you to the woodshed. And that happens to us all from time to time. Never forget that he bruises, yet he binds up. He wounds, yes, but his hands make whole. You know, compared to, time, to, to his times of blessing, God's discipline is always short-lived, isn't it? You know, he has a purpose for our brokenness. 
if we're not broken, we can't be used. But he's always quick to bind us back up. Even when he wounds us, he's always quick. His hands are quick to make us whole. I'll never forget when Nick was five years old. One day he had just sort of pushed me and pushed me to the brink. Finally, I sent him to his room and I went and fetched the dreaded wooden spoon. I was just about to dish out the discipline when Nick looked up at me through those teary little blue baby eyes and he looked into my eyes and with a quivering little voice he said to me, he said, Dad, he said, when you finish spanking me, will you give me a great big hug? And my heart melted. What an anger diffusing, daddy disarming, mercy motivating comment for a child to make. And being the loving father that I am, guess how I responded? I laid down that spoon, I knelt by his side, and I said to him, Sure, son, daddy will give you a great big hug right after I give you the spanking. I said I was going to give you and that you deserve. Because loving fathers spanked their kids. And I went on to lay the wood to the rump. A loving father, like God, spanks their kids. But then, but then, he he gives them a great big hug. He bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. Verse 19. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. God is faithful to us, Eliphaz says. Time after time after time, He's faithful. Time seven, He's faithful to us. In famine, He shall redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. Remember that the next time folks gossip about you. God can redeem you from the scourge of the tongue. And you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. And then in the rest of chapter 5, Eliphaz points out that God can bring peace. He can bring order to a chaotic life. He can enlarge families. He can let men live to ripe old ages. In short, God is good. And He loves to give good gifts. So, why has He chosen Job for hardship? In chapter 6, Job responds to Eliphaz. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. What vivid imagery here. Can you think of anything in nature as heavy as wet sand? Wet sand. Job says that if his grief were weighed, it would be as heavy as the sand of the sea. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. I mean, Job says he's being shot at. The Almighty is using him as target practice. He just doesn't know why. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or does the ox low over its fodder? I mean, Eliphaz has approached Job like, like he doesn't know that there's a problem. Job says, of course there's a problem. Why why do you think I'm braying like a donkey? Why do you think I have all these complaints? Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. 
They are loathsome food to me. In other words, Eliphaz's counsel had been as satisfying and as tasty to Job as a saltless food or as egg whites. Job had listened to Eliphaz drone on here for two chapters and he quite frankly was bored. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me the thing that I long for. In other words, if God would just tell me why. If God would just give me a reason for my calamity, the reason for my suffering, then God could just finish me off. He could just go ahead and kill me. I just want a reason for why these things have happened to me. Verse 9. That it would please God to crush me. That He would lose His hand Loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have comfort, though in anguish. I would exult. He will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Job is saying, at least I would know. I would have comfort in my anguish. You know, here's the secret of a good automobile mechanic. He does a great job of thoroughly explaining to you why He's about to charge you through the wazoo. But, but at least you can sit back and you may not have understood anything he said, but at least it, it sounds right. And you can kind of sit back and, and you know what he's up to, you know. It gives you comfort in the midst of your anguish. But, but if he just plops a $1,000 bill in your lap, or bill for $1,000 in your lap without any explanation, Sparks fly upward, don't they? Job is so upset because he's paying the bill without the explanation. He doesn't know why these things have happened to him. What strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? Is my help not within me, and is success driven from me? Job is saying, don't you see what a sad state I'm in? You know, I could use a little comfort here. To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Now, not that Job had, but even if he had forsaken God, his incredible pain might warrant a little sympathy, a little pity from his friends. Instead, they're trying to, Pin a sin on him. They're trying to find fault in him. And next he talks about their fickleness. From verse 15 down through verse 19, he compares them to the water runoffs that existed there in the desert. They would fill up in the springtime to overflowing, but then in the summertime they would dry up and literally disappear before your eyes. He's comparing his friends to that kind of a, a water runoff. You know, you're, you're here now, but where will you be tomorrow? In verse 22, Job asks his friends, Did I ever say, bring something to me? Or offer a bribe for me from, from your wealth? Or deliver me from the enemy's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the oppressors? And, and those Joseph say, I never ask you for your help. I never ask a favor from you. Why all of a sudden have you just busted in my life and you start volunteering this counsel? He challenges them in verse 24. He says, teach me. And I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. I mean, give me some truth. Help me answer my question. Tell me why these things have happened. And I'll listen. How forceful 
are right words. But what does your arguing prove? (laughs) Eliphaz had spoken eloquently, but ignorantly. And he's not the only one who speaks eloquently, but ignorantly. It's a common problem. Eloquent, but ignorant. Always beware of the smooth talker. It's not how a man speaks, it's what he actually says that counts. Especially remember that in a political season. Verse 26. Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one which are wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Isn't it interesting Job felt abandoned? By his heavenly father. He considered himself among the fatherless. Where's God? This was his question. Of course God had gone nowhere. As we'll discover. God is simply waiting on Job and his pals to shut up. God is going to appear to Job. But not in the way that Job expects. Verse 28. Now therefore be pleased to look at me. For I would never lie to your face. Yield now. Let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness still stands. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? Job's saying, I'm not lying. I'm innocent. My righteousness still stands. Can't you concede that I'm sinless here in this situation? I've done nothing to deserve this calamity. Can't you concede that? Chapter 7 is Job's. Is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? You know, in other words, life is hard. You, know, you work hard your whole life long. You barely make ends meet. Nobody's promised a bed of roses. Are not his days also like the days of a hired man? I mean, in a sense, we're all blue collar. We all work hard at what we do. Like a servant who earnestly desires the shade. And like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages. So I have been allotted months of futility. And wearisome nights have been appointed to me. Job says, I feel like I've labored like a dog. Notice too, he says that his suffering has apparently gone on for months of futility. You know, we often wonder how long, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how long Job suffered before he was restored. You know, we, we, sometimes we think it's days, sometimes it's weeks. Notice here, he talks about months of futility. He suffered for quite a while. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be ended? For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. Job hates the night. You know, at night he's all alone by himself. There's nothing to preoccupy him. There's nothing to distract him. He tosses and turns all night long. He says, my flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. Apparently his boils were just symptomatic of a more far-reaching illness. He says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Isn't it interesting? His nights never seem to end. But his days just fly by without hope of any healing or any change. His life's just flying by before him like a weaver's shuttle. 
Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. And of course, this isn't true. In the end, Job will receive twice the blessing that he had before. But that's how he feels at the moment. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. Job believes he's about to die. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. Verse 11 marks a turning point. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job believes he's about to die. So he's just going to speak his mind. He's just going to cut loose. Did you know that the word complain occurs more times in the book of Job than in any other book of the Bible? More than half of the complaints uttered in Scripture fall from the lips of Job. He thinks he's going to die here, so he might as well just complain. You know, it's sad, but from this point onward, you see a growing bitterness inside of Job. Here's what happens. Job begins to lose perspective. He forgets who God is. He forgets God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's justice. Job becomes bold and brash. Here's what happens. As he seeks an answer, as he questions God, in his mind, here's what happens. God starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And Job starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, he loses perspective on life and on God and on Him. Pain has a strange way of obscuring our vision, of altering our perspective, of even contaminating our theology. It's been said, in asking why... Job loses his way. Job cops an attitude. Job loses his reverence and his respect for God. Arrogance replaces Job's innocence. Verse 12. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. So that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. In other words, he's saying, I have a terrible time dozing off. But when I finally do go to sleep, I'm haunted by nightmares all night long. You won't let me sleep for the nightmares. I loathe my life. I hate my life. I would not live forever. If I found the fountain of youth, I wouldn't drink that poison. I hate life. The sooner I die, the better, Job says. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. Then in verses 17 through 19, Job cries out for God to leave him alone. Why does he visit him? Why does he test him? Why doesn't he just let Job die? In verse 20, Job comes back to his complaint. Have I sinned? Tell me, how have I sinned? What have I done to you, a watcher of men? Why why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? 
Tell me what I've done, God. Job accuses God of child abuse, doesn't he? Of using Job for target practice. God, why are you tormenting me? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Job's saying, I'll ask for forgiveness if you'll just tell me what I need to be forgiven for. For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. In chapter 8, it's Bildad's turn to step up to the microphone. And remember what we called him? Bildad the Brutal. And you're going to know why we call him that right off the bat. Because he doesn't even beat around the bush. He just steps right in and says what he thinks. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? I mean, his opening line, he tells Job he's full of hot air. A strong wind. He says, does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? Now remember, Bildad and Eliphaz, they were on the same page theologically. They both ascribed to this kindergarten theology. In short, God sees to it that bad stuff happens to bad people and that good stuff happens to good people. This is what they believed. And God is always fair. I mean, this is what they would adhere to. That like a parent, God's job is to consistently enforce the rules. Step out of line, God will spank you. Do the right thing, God will reward you. So, if the wicked prosper, or if the righteous suffer, it means that God has been unfair. Now again, in Bildad's theology... He only has two options. Either God is unjust or Job is sinned. It's one or the other. And rightly so, Bildad won't consider the possibility that God has been unfair. This is why he asks, does God subvert judgment? Does the Almighty pervert justice? Guys, here's why this kindergarten theology needs to grow up. It doesn't take into account the sovereignty of God. God is a big God. God is not some machine that always yields predictable results. You're a good little boy and so God gives you good little things. You're a bad little boy so He spanks your hand. That's not how life works. That's not how God works. God's not some machine that, that you plug in a certain behavior and out pops a certain response. Often God has purposes that He's working behind the scenes that we know nothing about. Certainly, it does pay to be good and godly. But payday doesn't always come in this life. In the here and now, catastrophe can strike even the most godly among us. Difficulties can hit without explanation. Hey, faith doesn't always get a reason. Never forget... The real reason for Job's sufferings were hidden in the heavens. As I said last week, remember, Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. There is another reason. There is another option. God has not failed. 
Job has not sinned. There's another option to explain these things. Job just doesn't see it. And he's not going to give up wanting to know why. Bildad continues his ignorance, verse 4. If your sons have sinned against him, he will cast them away for their transgression. I mean, suffering is always proof of sinning. That's what he's saying. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now He would awake for you and prosper your rightful, rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. Job, if you'd just come clean and confess what you've done, I mean, God will respond. I mean, He'll forgive you, man. Everything will be okay tomorrow. For inquire, please, of the former age. And consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing. Because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words from their heart? Now it's interesting. Recall Eliphaz, he appealed to his own experience. He based his observations on his own experience. Then he based his observation on This dream that he had. Now Bildad, he bases his theology on tradition. He appeals to the forefathers of generation past. You know, we were born just yesterday, Job. We know nothing. But what about those things that were discovered by our fathers? Notice, it's not the word of God that's his authority. It's tradition. It's the traditions of the past. Guys, this is the mistake that's been made by the Roman Catholic Church. Their theology is based on the church fathers rather than the Word of God. As a matter of fact, they have elevated church tradition to the level of Scripture. This is what got Bildad into trouble. In verses 11 through 22, Bildad says nothing grows apart from its environment. He says, can the Papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? In other words, likewise, Job, you need to pay attention to the tradition and the wisdom of your forefathers, to your environment. Verse 21 concludes that if Job would learn from tradition, his lips would rejoice again. Chapter 9. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? Job understands that no one is truly righteous before God. He realizes that we've all sinned. Job just knows that his sin didn't cause his calamity. Job still realizes the greatness and the supremacy of God. He says, if one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? That's a good question. Who's hardened themselves against God and has prospered? I like the old saying, a man's arms are too short to box with God. You know, don't harden your heart against God. You're not going to win. He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. You know, these are some provocative statements here. When did God ever shake the earth out of its place? He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. 
You know, in the days of Joshua, God will command the sun to stand still, and it obeys. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. This is why Jesus is walking on the water with such an incredible miracle. Not only did it show his power over nature, it revealed that he was God. For here Job points out, God alone treads on the waves of the sea. Isn't that interesting? Verse 9, God made the bear and Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. And it's interesting, these are constellations known to us today by these exact same names. You know, astronomy is the oldest of all the sciences. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Bible scholars believe that astronomy dates back to the Garden of Eden. That in Genesis 1, we're told that God created the stars not just for seasons, but as signs. In fact, some scholars believe that the zodiac and its constellations once told the story of redemption. It is interesting that the first sign of the ancient zodiac was Virgo, or the virgin, which is how the gospel begins, is it not? When a virgin conceives. The last sign of the zodiac is Leo, or the lion. And this age will end when Jesus returns to rule the world as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Obviously, the meaning of the zodiac has been corrupted over time, probably at the Tower of Babel. The Babylonians were the earliest star worshipers. And so by the time of Moses, God had to forbid his people from seeking the stars for guidance. But it's possible that in Job's day, that may even have predated the law, the stars still had divine meaning among the people. He says, God made the bear, Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. And Job continues, he does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing, God? No one questions God. No one tracks his whereabouts. God answers to no one. God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. The the word proud here is the Hebrew name Rahab. It's another name for Leviathan. You know that twisting serpent we talked about last week. The one who's associated at times with Satan. Here Job sees Satan under God's feet. You know the allies of the proud will lie prostrate beneath him. Verse 14. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? God wants a, Job wants a conversation with God. He has some questions for God. But if you can't see God. If you can't perceive him when he passes by, then how in the world can you talk to him? Job has a problem. For though I I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. The reality is hitting Job that even if he could speak with God, even if he could converse with the Almighty, he'd probably come across like a blubbering idiot. 
I mean, who, who is Job to actually speak and talk and communicate with God? Yet, he says, I am blameless. And it, he will hold to that to the end. I am blameless. Despite my inadequacies, despite God's greatness and my puniness, I still, I haven't sinned. I didn't do anything to bring on this calamity. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore I say, He destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, He laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. Job states what his friends aren't admitting. That life isn't always fair. And apparently God doesn't do much to ensure that it's fair. In fact, there are times God doesn't care that life is unfair. He says, if it is not He, who else could it be? Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I am afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. Job's saying, I, I know I'm not you know, a real happy person to be with right now. I know it's no fun to go to church with me. But, but you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm just not going to pretend, what do you want me to do? Just slap a smiley face on my face? Just pretend that I'm happy? i got some real problems here. I'm not going to ignore what troubles me. Hey, Job wants to know why. Why has this happened to me? He says, if I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. I've repented. I've tried to clean myself up. I've, I've tried to admit things. You know, but, but nothing changes. Verse 32, for God is not a man as I am. This is the problem. I, I don't know how to communicate with God. He's God. I'm a man. He's not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I will speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Job is a man, and in essence, he's up against God. And he can't argue with God. No man can argue with God. Your arms, my arms, are too short to box with God. Job needs a mediator. He needs a go-between. He needs someone who can lay one hand on Job and one hand on God. Someone who is perfect in the eyes of God and yet understands the heart of Job. This is what Job needs. And all men have the same need. We all need a mediator. Because we all are no better than Job. And God eventually supplies Job and all of mankind a mediator. He will come. The world will wait for Jesus Christ. He is the one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. In the meantime... Job is left to defend himself. Chapter 10. My soul loathes my life. He said that before, hasn't he? 
I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Over and over, he wants to know why. You know, it's been said, trials will either make you better or bitter. Well, they made Job bitter, didn't they? Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? You know, God, or Job mistakes God's patience with the wicked as an approval of their sin. That, that he's smiling on the counsel of the wicked. God doesn't always judge the wicked when we want the wicked judged. Do you understand that, don't you? You know, sometimes the wicked even escape this life without God's judgment. That doesn't mean he's not going to judge them. It just means that in this lifetime, he wants them to repent. He's being patient with them. Don't ever mistake God's patience as his approval of the wicked. You know, he, he, he's patient with us so that we will repent, that we'll turn to him. In verses 4 through 6, Job is upset. That God smiles on the wicked while he spends his time condemning Job. Even though verse 7 tells us, you know that I am not wicked. Again, Job is adamant. You know, God, I haven't done anything to deserve this. Verse 8. Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity. Yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay. And will you turn me into dust again? Do you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? Job marvels at the miracle of life, the intricacies of the human body. You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. Job glories in God's creation. He just wonders why now God is trying to snuff him out. You know, why God is condemning him. What, what is God's purpose in all that's happened to him? Why has this happened? Job concludes in verse 13. All these things you have hidden in your heart. This was the problem. God had hidden from Job the answers that he sought. All these things you have hidden in your heart. God isn't obligated to give us an explanation for everything he does. I hope you know that. By the way, God doesn't answer to you. God is God. He's not applying for the job. He doesn't seek our permission, nor does he promise us an explanation for everything he does. God is God. God does as he pleases. God is sovereign. This is the lesson Job is learning. Job is hidden from, God has hidden from Job the answers that he seeks. Instead, though, God hunts him down like a lion. And once more, through the rest of chapter 10, Job despairs of his life. In verse 20, Job basically tells his counselors to bug off. He says, are not my days few? Cease. Give it up, man. Leave me alone. That I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return. To the land of darkness and the shadow of death. As a, a land as dark as darkness itself. As the shadow of death without any order. 
where even the light is like darkness. Job is saying, man, give me a little peace and quiet before I die. I've had enough of you guys. Sadly, that's not what Job gets. For in chapter 12, Zophar speaks up. Zophar, he's been quiet. But Zophar is a real piece of work. And we'll get to him next week. Boy, fascinating, fascinating book. Bunch of old guys just getting around, beating these things back and forth. And it gets in the Bible. That's the amazing thing to me. It, it all gets in the Bible. Because we're all right there, aren't we? God is good. Life is hard. How, how do we reconcile those two things? Well, that's what Job is about. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for this fascinating story. Lord, we pray that as, as Job and his friends grapple with these issues, Lord, may we too be honest with our, our issues, honest with our struggles. For in so many ways, Lord, we're like Job. We believe you, Lord. We love you. We believe that you're good. We believe that everything you do is good. And yet so often things don't work out as we had hoped. So often life disappoints us and we wonder why. Lord, what do we do with those questions, why? What do we do when the answers are hidden from us? Teach us, Lord, in these coming weeks as we journey with Job through his anguish. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.